Hello, this is John Cleese, and you're listening to the Podcast Network. Welcome to the Napoleon Bonaparte Podcast, episode 31, David Markham. How have you been since our last show, sir? Well, I am delighted to be back. I've been fine. Thank you very much. Uh, and uh, I've been getting a lot of emails from, from people who have uh, been listening to our show, and I've, I've certainly enjoyed uh, getting those emails. I got one from... Uh, uh, Let's see who it was here. Tim, uh, now I'll, I'll, here we go. Uh, Tim O'Dwyer from, from your neck of the woods down in, down under in, in Australia. And, and he had the nerve to say good things about Talleyrand. <clears throat> and I thought I would put him straight on Talleyrand. But then I see that you have replied to him too and have admitted to being an admirer of Talleyrand. Now, now, Cameron, I'm I'm going to have to sit down with you and have a very long, you know, man-to-man talk uh, with you about Talleyrand. If I were a father somewhere along the line, I'd have had to sit down with my son or perhaps my daughter and talk about the facts of life. And I clearly need to talk to you about the facts of the Polyonic life. And, and for that matter, I need to talk to... to uh, Mr. Dwyer as well. Uh, Come on, there's but, there's, uh, there's no disputing that Talleyrand was it was an incredibly rich and interesting character. And as I said in my reply to Tim, outside of Napoleon, probably was the the, the single individual that shaped the destiny of France and, and and all of Europe during this period. I mean, he was instrumental in Napoleon's rise. And then was equally instrumental in the destruction of Napoleon's throne, and you know he was, uh, you know, not a certainly not not an admirable person by any stretch of the imagination. But from purely Machiavellian terms, his ability to push buttons and pull strings and do deals, you know, behind the curtain, uh, was he was incredibly successful manipulator of European political affairs for 30, 40 years. Oh, I wouldn't deny that for a moment, but uh, I don't think that qualifies to, to, for me to be a fan of uh, Talleyrand. <laughs> I do, I do respect what he what he did. I respect his talents, and he was a survivor. And uh, I think uh, Tim called Dark Lord or something, and I'm not so sure that Fouché doesn't get that title. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, he did suggest Mr. Edouard did suggest something that others have suggested, and I think we will try to do this. And please do keep reminding us, because at least half of your podcast team is 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 deep into senility, I'm sure. Uh, but we would like to do a uh, uh, one or, or more shows on some of the cast of characters, some of the marshals, uh, certainly Talleyrand and Fouché, and maybe Colin Cor and and a few others, uh, people who we may mention in passing as we go through the chronology of Napoleon's career, but who probably deserve to have uh, a little bit more said about them. And, of course, that'll be yet another reason for us to just keep this thing going on and on. 
And that's another thing that I really appreciate hearing from, from the folks. So essentially, without exception, the people who bother to comment on it at all say, listen, don't worry about the time. Go as long or as short as you feel appropriate for any particular show. And for heaven's sakes, none of us are looking forward to seeing it end. So don't worry about that either. Well, I don't know, Cameron, if you are looking forward to it ending or not, but and, and I'm not. But I'm also having absolutely no luck even imagining an end to the show. So you know, we, we're going to go on for a lot longer. Here we are at episode, what What do you say, 31? 31. Uh, and we're just now beginning uh, the 100 days. We, we will almost certainly not get through Waterloo. So, so at least two periods, possibly three sections will be done on, on, on the 100 days. Because after all, I have a whole book coming out on the period between Waterloo and when he's uh, goes off into exile on Saint Helene. So, so there's a fascinating period of time coming up, and and uh, one of those periods in Napoleon's career that, while it certainly has a a melancholy aspect to it, it also has uh, an excitement to it, and 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 it's unique uh, in the annals of history. There's very very few, if any, other periods in history. Uh, of any of these these great people that that we like to study in history uh, that can relate to the uh, sans jour or the hundred days uh, of Napoleon. I can remember uh, reading my uh, very first book on Napoleon, which we've mentioned a few times, Vincent Cronin's biography, which is oh, 30, 30 odd years old now, I guess. I've got it here in front of me. First printed. It's, it's uh, pushing. It's pushing forty. It came out in nineteen seventy, if I recall. Seventy-one, according to the version I've got here. Um, That's right. And but I remember reading uh, this 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 section, uh, the the return from Elba, which we're going to start off with today, and uh, just being so exhilarated by and, and it was just one of those things that's always stuck with me uh, the first time i read it you know the, the the first time you experience a lot of these things is um often quite uh, the, the retained in your memory and i remember hearing this story of how napoleon returned to paris and just being blown away firstly that i'd never heard that story before <laughs> and secondly just what an incredibly like if you saw this, if, if if you saw this in a Hollywood film, you wouldn't believe it. You'd go, ah, you know, it'd be, it would be taking suspension of disbelief too far, almost. It's just one of the most mind-boggling moments in modern history that I've ever heard of, and I'm really excited about doing this episode. I'm I'm giddy, as people can probably hear in my voice, and it's not because I've had several Red Bulls to drink today, although that probably is contributing to my <laughs> state of mind. But um, Well, yes, I, I think that you have taken uh, taken to following my example with your, your medication, although I, I have to say your choice of medication is is, is is perhaps not as good as it could be. Well, if I was drinking, uh, I, if I was drinking your medication in the middle of the day, because it's 12.30 p.m. here, yeah, that, that would probably be frowned upon. Well, yes, I, you do have a point, and... And, and we do have to sometimes uh, re remind ourselves, or I have to remind myself, that while it's about uh, a little after 5.30 uh, on, on Tuesday evening, my time, it's a little after 12.30, uh, you know, half past noon uh, on uh, Wednesday, your time. And I, I still have a hard time uh, getting my hand around that one, getting my mind around that one, rather. And, 
and that's probably why I need the the medication. And I started my medication a little usual today because my wife came home early, and you know when she comes home, I I I, I definitely need all the medication I can get. So so uh, uh, you know I'm I'm feeling very good as well. Uh, but by the way, the the hundred days is as you say one of those truly amazing and exciting times, and you can see it in a movie. Because, of course, and we've mentioned this before, and I'll probably allude to it again later on, as, as you might as well, the Rod Steiger movie Waterloo, which came out around the same time as the Vincent Cronin book, which I consider one of the all-time best books on Napoleon, by the way. I agree with you completely. Uh, but, you know, uh, Rod Steiger does a wonderful job portraying Napoleon during the Hundred Days along the route Napoleon, uh, up to uh, uh, Grenoble, uh, on into Paris, and then finally on to Waterloo. And, and while certainly, like all movies, it's not entirely uh, accurate uh, historically, they take an awful lot of things that, that happened over a period of time and put them into one day and that, that sort of thing. Uh, nevertheless, it gives you a real good flavor for what Napoleon went through during the Hundred Days, during the Battle of Waterloo, and so on. And, and at the very end of the, 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 the uh, movie uh, is really more or less where, where my next book picks up. So it's a wonderful movie, and if you want to get a good sense of it, uh, you, you certainly can, uh, uh, can, can, can watch that. So let's recap. Uh, at the end of episode 30, we had Napoleon in Elba in exile, and we mentioned that under the Treaty of Fontainebleau, uh, Napoleon was to receive an annuity of 2 million francs, and other members of his family were also to receive money. Madame Mare, his mother, and Pauline were supposed to get 300,000 francs each. They had gone with Napoleon, as you mentioned in the last episode, to Elba. And not a penny of this had been paid by the French government. So Napoleon was forced to uh, survive on the income that he could generate from Elba. And uh, he had iron mines that were bring, bringing in about 300,000 francs a year. He had a fishery and, and salt mines that were bringing in another 50,000. But his expenses were four times that amount. So, And as listeners will know, Napoleon had always been very fastidious when it came to how he handled his money. He had left France uh, in uh, with, a, with a positive bank account, bank balance, and he had always chastised all of the members of his family, including Josephine and his, his siblings, plus his, uh, uh, his, his team of executives in France for, for mishandling of money or spending it too wantonly. He had always been in his letters incredibly uh, critical of his family members and his wife if he felt that they were spending too much money. And here he is, not able to meet his expenses, which for Napoleon must have been absolutely infuriating. Now, even well, his, it, I was just going to say, his mother had sold her diamonds as well f to cover his running expenses. and uh, But he was in a very desperate financial situation because... Uh, King uh, Louis had basically decided he wasn't going to pay him a cent, a franc. 
Well, that's 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 right. And and Napoleon, as, as you rightfully say, was always a little bit of a tightwad. He was very very careful. He he knew down to me what what this budget or that budget call for uh and and it's not a question of him wanting to to have a super luxurious lifestyle and not being able to afford it although obviously he wasn't going to move into you know a shanty somewhere he he did have the title of emperor he had a court to maintain uh, but that was a relatively small part of his expenses he had a thousand or so members of of his old guard and he had to pay their salaries, and he couldn't ask them to 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 survive on nothing. Uh, he he had to pay uh, any number of other staff salaries. This this income that he got from from the mines and so on really wasn't just meant to to buy his food and his clothes and pay for his parties. It it had to go to to a fairly wide range of of expenses, and he could do that for a while. And as you said, the family chipped in and they sold this and they sold that. But in the long term, it simply wasn't going to work if he didn't get his pension, which, of course, is why the treaty called for the pension to begin with and which, of course, is why Wellington, the, the British government officially, other governments in Europe, told Louis XVIII, please pay Napoleon. All you do is ask for trouble if you don't pay him. Now, there was talk of moving him to a prison. There was talk of exile, and in fact, on St. Helena. And there was talk of this, that, and the other thing. But at least for the time being, the best way to keep Napoleon under control was to give him sufficient funds that he could live a comfortable life in exile and maybe particularly want to go back to France or make a move into Italy. Uh, he had promised to write his memoirs. Uh, a lot of folks on uh, both his supporters and, and his enemies, I really believe, thought that Napoleon would in fact stay on Elba, relax, enjoy the sun, enjoy the companionship. He, as we said last time, he had all these visitors. He was a celebrity. You know, he was, he, he was the most famous person in the world. And people came to visit, came to see him, important people, common people, his, his, his own subjects on Elba, uh, adored him, and of course were just ecstatic that they they had the great Napoleon as as their emperor. Uh, everything would have been fine in so many ways if it had just stayed on Elba. And I have oftentimes fantasized or imagined how history would be different, what would have happened to to Europe, to Napoleon, to the family, and so on, had he been allowed to stay there and had he decided that for all of the relative boredom that that might entail that it was a good safe existence a luxurious existence uh and and at his age uh well well worth it but we, we all know it didn't happen and we should also point out too that uh as we did in the last episode that he has not been able to see his son the king of rome or his wife marie louise they've been scurried off to austria by marie louise's father 
and that you know there was some sh- uh, there was some very important critics of France's failure to pay the the pension the annuity the the most vocal of which was Alexander the the Tsar the Emperor of Russia. Uh, he said as late as the 15th of February to Talleyrand, the treaty is not being carried out and we are bound to demand its execution. It is for us an affair of honour. We cannot depart from its stipulations in any way. Yes, I'm, and then uh, Norman Mackenzie in the Escape from Elba book I mentioned last time goes on to say, the Tsar's comment was primarily directed at the French failure to pay the promised pensions, but his long-standing dislike of the Bourbons made him go out of his way to support the claims of Mario Louise. Now, at the same time as all of this, Napoleon's getting reports that the French pretty much aren't happy with uh, the return of Louis, are they? Well, no, they're they're not. And and as we've mentioned before, the 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 soldiers, many of whom have been put on half pay, were were sort of longing for the glory days. Uh, but you know, it, it's said that. One of the criticisms of the next phase of Napoleon's life, which is when he goes into to exile in St. Helena, we will roundly criticize uh, the British government and, 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 and indeed the rest of Europe for their very poor treatment of Napoleon. But at least initially, and at least, you know, on the surface, their treatment of Napoleon as a deposed monarch now is pretty decent. They've allowed him to keep his title. They've allowed him to remain as an emperor. They've, it's not much different than a deposed king or a king that's been chased out of the country or whatever, uh, being allowed to go live in a, in a, in a castle in, 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 in Scotland, as the future Louis XVIII was allowed to uh, after Napoleon uh, took over. Uh, but after, actually, after the French Revolution, but it's 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 not a bad treatment if they follow through, if they pay him, if they allow him to live in peace, particularly down the line if they allow him to visit Marie Louise and travel, which technically he was allowed to do. Many people write about the escape from Elba. Well, the fact of the matter is he was being watched. You know, people wanted to know what he was doing. And he did manage to sneak out unobserved, uh, but he was never technically forbidden from leaving Elba. Uh, and so they were trying on this go around to treat Napoleon at least somewhat the way they typically would treat other former monarchs, deposed monarchs, whatever you want to call them, uh, and give them a comfortable life. And if Louis XVIII had operated, who's to say? Would Napoleon have still got bored and left? Would he have been so afraid of, of the bad guys coming to get him and tossing him into a prison ship or whatever that he would have thrown the dice one more time? You can argue either way on that. But once Louis wouldn't pay, he had no choice but to do something. And again, we're, we're spending a lot of time in review here, but that's, that's okay. He had a number of options. Uh, he, he did consider uh, going to the United States. Uh, he, would have, he still had a lot of personal wealth uh, during that first year. He would have moved to America as a very wealthy private citizen and, and uh, 
would have been set up well uh, in, say, in the very French city of New Orleans or, or perhaps Baltimore. Uh, he could have possibly moved into Italy with his thousand men. He had a lot of friends there, Murat, where he might have got a rapprochement. I mean, maybe he could have established a base there, and as long as he stayed there, people would have left him alone, and that might have reunited him with his wife and child. And then, of course, the final option, and the option that we're about to talk about, was that he could roll the dice one more time uh, and try to regain power in France. Obviously, if you're sitting around your drawing room and you're Napoleon, going back to France, recapturing the days of glory, being reunited with your entire army and your marshals and, and, and other people from your government, having the adulation of your people once again, well, that's the most romantic, that's the most exciting aspect of all of this. Uh, and ultimately, given, as, as you say, Cameron, the, the fact that he has information from a variety of sources that many of the people of France, and especially of the Grande Armée, are interested in having him come back. He decides that he will throw the dice one more time. Uh, the English commissioner, Sir, Sir Neil Campbell, a, a generally good fellow with whom Napoleon had established a, a good relationship, uh, is going off on vacation to Italy. Very convenient. So with his primary observer, if you will, gone, that might be a very good time for Napoleon to to slip out of town. Now, there are people who believe, and I don't really know if, if I agree with them or not, but there are people who believe that the British were sufficiently unhappy with Louis XVIII, that they frankly wouldn't mind if Napoleon came back. Now, again, I don't know if I believe this. I, I had a very dear friend of mine many years ago tell me I needed to go and do some research into the archives in, in Great Britain and see if I could find evidence that would support that theory. And I may, uh, I may do that someday. Uh, I'm, I'm skeptical that the British really, in fact, wanted him to come back, that they saw any, any benefit to be gained. Uh, maybe they, they saw it as a way to get rid of Napoleon. That's sort of a different approach. Uh, you know, we don't dare move against Napoleon because we have this treaty to which we are signatories. Uh, but if Napoleon comes back, now we can get him once and for all. There's a, a variety of theories in all of that. Uh, but whatever the case may be, Napoleon's mother, a number of his other uh, supporters, his advisors and so forth, uh, believe that it would be a good idea uh, for Napoleon to go back. I'm reminded of Alexander the Great's father, uh, who, who, who told uh, Alexander after he had, you know, tamed the horse Bucephalus uh, that you must seek another kingdom. My son, uh, Macedonia, is too small for you. Well, clearly, Elba, in the eyes of many, was too small 
for Napoleon. And so on the 25th of February of 1815, Napoleon takes, oh, around 1,100 men, 40 horses, an enormous uh, artillery park of four cannon, uh, and a few carriages, and, and he jumps into uh, a few ships and sails for the French coast. Now, let's, let's, let's just pause there and consider that for a moment for the listeners. One guy with 1,100 men and four cannon and a few horses is going back to Europe, going back to mainland Europe, where the united forces of all of the kingdoms of Europe had just kicked him out, plus his own army he's lost now. There's a new king in France controlling the French army. You've got one man and 1,100 troops against, theoretically, the entire military might of Europe and Great Britain. This is just... This is insanity. This is like, this reminds me of Castro and his eighty troops arriving in Cuba in the late fifties. This is just uh, the odds of this are just absolutely ridiculous, aren't they? Are you talking about him rolling the dice? I mean, this is this is like the the, the most the worst odds you can ever imagine. He has to be betting on the fact that he's not going to have to fight any major battles early on. He had to be gambling on the fact that his uh, his popularity, his personality, his charisma, the, the desire on behalf of the French people to have him back on the throne was going to be all that was needed. Do, do you think that's true, or do you think that he seriously expected to have to fight some trench warfare on the way across? Well, no, his whole philosophy was that he would have to find a way to avoid confrontation. To me, it's a lot like Caesar crossing the Rubicon when he gambles everything to take power. And he's going against the Senate. He's going against the armies of Pompeii. He's going against public opinion. He's, he's breaking the law uh, by taking an army uh, into Rome. So you know, Caesar has an awful lot going against him, but quite frankly, I think Caesar had the better of it. I think Caesar's uh, uh, situation was actually better uh, than Napoleon. Napoleon is, as you accurately point out, landing in at least a potentially very hostile Europe, and indeed a potentially hostile France, with 1,100 men and a couple of cannon, four cannon. Uh, but Napoleon has a number of things in mind. Number one, he wants to avoid any serious confrontation. And we'll talk about how he does that in a moment. And number two, he wants to convince people that he has come seeking peace, that he is simply reclaiming a throne that foreign powers and treachery stripped from him, but that he no longer wishes to conquer Europe. He doesn't even want to conquer Belgium. He just wants to rule France. And he can rightfully claim that the people of France didn't get rid of him, and the people of France did not particularly want Louis uh, the 18th. So 
he also, the, the third thing he wants to do is to excite the army. He knows he must bring the, the army to his side and bring it to his side quickly. Now, the army may miss the glory days, but they don't particularly miss the constant warfare. And so he has to, to combine a return to glory. The, you know, the, the eagle will advance from steeple, from to steeple to the, to, 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 to the spires of Notre Dame. But he also has to convince them that he is not going to call upon them to try to conquer, to, to once again return to a life of, 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 of constant warfare. So he sends any number of, of bulletins out in, in, and, uh, in various publications. I've, I've put them out. But the most famous is, you know, soldiers in my exile, I heard your voice. I've arrived despite all obstacles and perils. Your general called to the throne by the people's choice and raised upon your sheet has been returned to you. Come and join him. Notice that's your general, not your emperor. Uh, so Napoleon is determined that he will march into Paris without firing a single shot because his whole plan depends on the image of France welcoming back their savior, their emperor, their general, call them what you wish. As soon as any French soldier fires on him, that image is likely gone. And so, for uh, e example, uh, a few of Napoleon's soldiers uh, were were captured. They 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 went to a local garrison and tried to convince it to join them, and instead they were captured, and and you know, kept prisoner. Napoleon probably could have secured the release because it was a small garrison, but that would have required fighting. French soldiers. Napoleon didn't want to do that, so he simply left them to their own devices uh, and, and, and moved forward. Moreover, Napoleon also understood, and again, we've talked about this before, you know, in the United States, we have red states and blue states according to the, the media coverage of our elections, and, and a lot of us really think that's a terribly simplistic approach that not all blue states are devoid of Republicans and not all red states are devoid of Democrats, but, but in terms of overall levels of support, the red state, blue state, uh, you know, has some, some merit. Well, France was red state and blue state as well. There were areas that were very, very religious, very anti-Napoleon, very pro-royalist, etc., and there were areas, there weren't very many of them, but there were some. And there were areas where Napoleon was much more popular. Napoleon clearly did not want to go through the areas that were most royalist. He didn't want to go straight north through Provence, for example, where there were soldiers 
under the command of marshals and generals that were not loyal to him and where the people were much more royalist than imperialist. Instead, he takes a sort of a northeasterly route through the mountains uh, toward Grenoble, a route now that is known by the signs and everything as the route Napoleon. You can follow it. I've, I've followed. I've driven the route. And even in a car, it's a mountainous uh, road. It's sometimes difficult, lots of bad turns and so on. Uh, and uh, so for Napoleon to, to try to do this essentially on foot is really uh, pretty, pretty spectacular. And it also has to be said that Napoleon was not universally welcomed when he first showed up. You know, there's this image, and we're going to post a few pictures on the web, and, and some of them show, you know, people cheering Napoleon uh, as he doffs his hat or whatever. Well, that tends to happen in a number of days later uh, and quite a bit off the coast. Initially, there's more bemusement than anything else, more curiosity, and indeed uh, some, some negativity. <clears throat> some alarm they look at first of all they don't even all recognize him because a lot of them had never seen him but once they realize who this guy is they say what the hell is he doing here <laughs> thought we were thought we were rid of him <laughs> or you know yeah it'd be nice to have him back but who are we kidding the allies aren't going to put up with that and what's louis going to have to say about all this and Marshal Ney, the commander of, of, of the military forces, and, 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 and some of the other major people who had declared loyalty to the new king, Louis XVIII. So they sort of scratched their head and hold their breath and hope that all hell doesn't break loose. Can I, can I interject a moment? Absolutely. Um, talking about Napoleon's motivation and philosophy and you know i always like to look look at uh scratch the surface of napoleon's character and personality during these moments where he does the outrageous or the outlandish and and i've got a quote here uh again this is uh, from cronin's book where he uh says to uh his troops when he reaches grenoble if the people in the army don't want me, at the first encounter, 30 or 40 of my men will be killed. The rest will throw down their muskets. I shall be finished and France will be quiet. If the people in the army do want me, and I hope they will, the first battalion I meet will throw itself into my arms. The rest will follow. I mean, we're talking an incredible... I mean, he always... I was going to say an incredible vision or fatalism about napoleon i know that he always talked about his star and his this sense of destiny or the sense of fate that he felt for himself and you know even in times like this he seems to what's he almost seems to be throwing himself out there and be willing to accept whatever comes of it does that make any sense it's it, well i i agree uh, I, I also want to add, though, that I don't think Napoleon is foolish. I think he's thought this through very carefully. And while he is rolling the dice, while he is obviously taking a gamble, I think he has thought through 
and come up with what for him was a scenario that would work. Did it require certain things to happen properly? Oh, absolutely. And, and we'll see there, there were some flaws in the ointment here, uh, or flies in the ointment, flaws in his logic. But he put together a plan. He followed that plan. And all the way up to Waterloo, and indeed well into Waterloo, that plan worked. Everything worked brilliantly up to Waterloo, with one exception, which of course led to Waterloo, and we'll talk about that in a second too. Uh, there was one thing that he, he couldn't control, uh, and I've often wondered you know, if he had been able to control that, and there was at least in theory a way that he could have, uh, how would things have been different? But we'll get to that momentarily. But other than that, and that's a big other than, his plan was well executed, well conceived, and darn near worked. I mean, they quote from Wellington at the end of Waterloo, that's it's so often used, was a near-run run thing. Uh, you know, Napoleon almost brought this whole thing off against all of the odds uh, of him doing so. At any rate, Napoleon, if you have a comment, go ahead. Uh, no, I was just going to move it forwards to my favorite bit, but I don't want to get in the way of you telling the story, man. Well, you know, I'm, I'm sure I know what your favorite bit is, and, 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 and we'll get to it in a second. Uh, but it takes a while to get to, to Laffrey. I'm assuming that's what, what you're talking about. Uh, Napoleon starts to go up the, the mountain, into the mountains. And he, eventually he has to, to, to ditch the carriages. Uh, he finally ditches the cannon. And, and indeed, one of the carriages at least falls over a cliff and so on and, and drops, drops a bunch of money. I've, when I went on the route of Napoleon, I was very tempted to, to go down there and see if I could find any of the, those gold Napoleons. But, but I figured somebody had been there before. Uh, and uh, so he slowly but surely begins to get more and more supporters. He... He picks up the odd soldier here and there. Uh, the occasional citizen will salute and cry out, uh, vive uh, l'empereur. Uh, he, he, he goes into uh, uh, various places. And in one of my books, you know, he, he, he talks with people. He shares a, an egg with, a, with an, an abbot somewhere, an abbey somewhere. And, and, and one, of the th one of the themes that he keeps talking about was that we no longer can control the destiny of others. We can no longer uh, expect to conquer the world. He tells people this over and over and over again, doing everything he can to make it clear that he is coming to retrieve the throne of emperor of the French and nothing else. And of course, the people of France, quite frankly, want to hear that. Because in all honesty, at that point, I don't think they cared a damn about the empire. I don't care. I don't think they cared 
about whether they, you know, had control over, you know, the Confederation of the Rhine or the Grand Duchy of Warsaw or, or whether or not they, 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 they could cow uh, Emperor Francis of Austria's submission, et cetera, et cetera. They wanted Napoleon to run France to bring the kind of reforms, bring the kind of success that he had had in France, protect them from any outside invasions, obviously, but that's really all they wanted. And I truly believe, and, and I know that people will say, well, there's Markham being a, a Napoleonic apologist again, but everything I've read and all logic will tell you that Napoleon had no interest in trying to reestablish the grand empire that he had once controlled. That clearly was not going to happen. His only shot at making this work was to convince the Allied forces, Great Britain, Prussia, Russia, Austria, to a lesser extent Spain, uh, that he should be allowed to rule his own country. And it works up to a point. He goes along and he begins to approach the the important city of uh, Grenoble. Okay, by the fifth of March, just a few days, because he lands on the first of March. My 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 sister Sarah's birthday is the first of March, so that's that's one date that I can always remember. Uh, he lands on on the coast uh, at uh, Gulf Juan uh, on the uh, on on the first of March. By the way, I've got to tell you a little story. Uh, my wife and I were were in the Gulf Juan. Uh, looking for the monument, and I'll try to send you pictures of, of the monument. Uh, looking think, for the I monument. Think, I think I've got that, my own photo uh, of that, sir. Oh, you have that? Well, excuse me. Uh, but you don't have a photo. You don't have a photo of me standing next to it. <laughs> no, that's true. With my really sexy leg, you know. Uh, you know, there are there are pictures, and then there are pictures. <laughs> At any rate, uh, I was tell my students I got the sexiest legs they'll ever see, and they sort of groan and say, yeah, whatever. Uh, so so we're, we're, we're having a little hard time finding it, and we, we stop at this place. Uh, I stop in Double Park, and my wife runs in and asks this guy. I, I think it was a bistro of some kind. I don't recall. And they've never heard of it. They have no idea. No idea where it would be. They didn't know anything like that existed. Now, the, this is on the corner, one block off of the Mediterranean. They're right on the corner. So we turn the corner, go a block, hit the ocean, and there's a, an ocean, you know, front road. And there in front of us, one block from this place, is the monument that shows where Napoleon landed at the Gulf Shuana on the 1st of 1815. So I, 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 it was all I could do not to go back and explain to that person that I guess what? Your knowledge of history is perhaps a little less than it could be since this thing is one block from you. Uh, at any rate, so he's, he's marched up. By the 5th of March, Louis is aware of, of what's going on. The word has, has got to him by semaphore and so on. And the initial reaction is, you know, you have to be kidding. Napoleon? with 1,100 men, okay, maybe it's 2,000 by now. So what? We, we have whole units of, 
of the French army, whole corps, you know, 30,000 men here and there at our disposal. Uh, and they sworn loyalty uh, to us. And here comes, you know, Napoleon with a few thousand men. Uh, not a big deal. Still, Louis says, okay, let's begin to think about this a little bit. Uh, he calls in his uh, commander-in-chief now of, of his military forces, uh, Marshal Michel Ney, the, the bravest of the brave, the hero of the retreat from Moscow. Uh, and, of course, Marshal Ney very famously promises to bring Napoleon back in an iron cage. Well, I don't know that, uh, that he was ever going to do that. Uh, but but he, he did at least initially feel that he was willing to try to stop Napoleon. If we so can, Napoleon, so go ahead. We, you were talking before about the uh, Rod Steiger uh, film Waterloo or the right. film where Steiger plays Napoleon. This is one of the only good things about Orson Welles becoming obese in his uh, older age was his performance of Louis in, in that actual scene, I think, where there's just... Oh, he's, he's fabulous as Louis. Corpulently obese. Beast Louis sitting there just stuffing his face with chicken or something and his fingers riddled with gout and he gets this telegraph, this message that Napoleon's arrived and he just looks befuddled and and stares at it blankly for, for some time and then sends for Ney or, or Salt, according to Marsh, uh, Vincent Cronin here. He says that Salt was the minister of war, but Ney was the head of the armed forces. Is that how it breaks down? Yes, and, and he actually, in, in the movie, and I think probably in, in reality, sends for them both. Right. Um, yeah, but it's just, it's yeah, I'm, I'm a huge Orson Welles fan, and uh, yes. very sad. No, the pun, way no, pun in, no pun intended. Huge, yes, okay. Huge. <laughs> I get it. But, well, let but, me tell you, as I've read, and I've never seen an image of this. Of course, they wouldn't dare, but I've read that, that that he was so fat, not 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 Orson Welles, but Louis the Eighteenth, that they had to carve out a section, you know, a little area of his table, so he could get his rotundity up to the table to eat. Uh, and I I wouldn't doubt it. Uh, you know, the we talk about the obesity epidemic today. Well, he he certainly was a, a harbinger of of what was to come. Uh, at so, any, at any rate. Sorry, before we go on, let's talk about Marshall, Marshall Ney for a moment, if we can. So yep. here we had Ney, who was uh, the prince of the Moskova, the bravest of the brave, a few years previously after the, the return, the strategic withdrawal, David, from Russia. <laughs> uh, yes, and that's my preferred uh, term for it, yes. And now we've got Ney not only having uh, committed himself to... Louis after Napoleon's exile, but saying he's going to bring back Napoleon in a cage. And I, and I love uh, Orson Welles as Louis' retort after Ney leaves the room. Something like, oh, that, it's, what does he say? Something like, um, oh, that's He says, not, in an uh, iron cage? Huh, these generals. Nobody <laughs> asked nobody ask for that. In an iron cage? He's, he's absolutely amazed that, that Ney would do this. And and, you know, the, in the movie, uh, he says, you know, Orson Welles, you know, Louis XVIII says to me, I, I know you, you, you love this man. And, and Ney says, I did once, sire, 
but I promise your majesty I will bring him back in an iron cage. Now, whether that's word for word accurate or not, uh, Ney apparently did make that that pledge to, to do that. Uh, was he grandstanding? Uh, no, I don't think he was. I mean, Ney had switched sides. And Ney was probably, as many, many people were thinking, you've got to be kidding. What the hell is Napoleon thinking? And also that, you know, Napoleon has no chance, so I'm not about to switch sides. Of course, I'm going to be loyal to the king, who, by the way, had forgiven him his loyalty to Napoleon for all those years and given him a very, very important position. Ney was wealthy, living very comfortably, thank you very much, as were uh, Assault and, and the other folks who had switched sides. Uh, and, and by the way, this is not traitorous on their part or unkind or whatever. Uh, career soldiers serve the, the government of the day. Uh, and, and, you know, whoever the president of the United States is, the military will support him. If you can't support current president, and if you're a, a, a four-star general or whatever, then you, then you retire. Get out of here. I, I can't believe that you believe that Ney wasn't a traitorous bastard. No, no, no. Well, what was he supposed to do? He was nothing before Napoleon. He had ridden oh, on Napoleon's coattails for not, 15 years. None of those people were. And by the way, yes, it would have been nice if Ney would have said, let me go into exile with you. Okay, that you you can you could make that argument, but you can also make the argument that I do that these people were career soldiers at that point, and you know Napoleon did not call on them to go with him. Napoleon essentially said, "Okay, I'm going into exile, uh, and and you guys cut the deal that you can." <laughs> so, <laughs> do I wish that Ney had done something different? Yeah, sure, but. I think that, uh, that Ney did what career soldiers would do. They pledged allegiance to the new government. I've just got this image of Napoleon saying, all right, I'm going into exile. Okay, I'll be going then. All right, just waiting for someone to go, I'll come with you, sire. <laughs> well, and some, some, some did. Many yeah. of the old guard, I mean, he was supposed to have, I think, 600 uh, old guardsmen go with him, and then you know there were so many more that he couldn't cut it back, and the Allies sort of looked the other way, and he took you know a thousand or eleven hundred or almost double what he was supposedly in, in, entitled to, and they figured I think fairly that it didn't really matter if he took you know eleven hundred instead of six hundred, you know so what? Mm. Uh, in fact, that's all the more people he has to pay uh, uh, from his meager uh, salary. Uh, but, you know, I understand your point about Ney. Uh, I cut Ney some slack. I cut Ney a lot less slack at Waterloo. Uh, but I, I cut him some slack on this. And, and uh, of course, he does eventually make, make the right decision. At any rate, regardless of that, uh, Ney and MacDonald and others are, Marshal MacDonald, are sent to, you know, intercept Napoleon if he happens to get that far. And eventually... He comes up to uh, the town of Laffrey, which is just outside of uh, Grenoble. It's uh, southwest, uh, I suppose, of, of, of Grenoble. And by then, 
Napoleon is seeing a very different reaction. Now people are cheering. Now he's got, oh, I don't know, I'd have to go look it up, four or 5,000 troops anyway. And he's sending scouts ahead. He's sending people ahead for, for internal passports so that they can you know, go, go through unmolested and so on. Uh, the word is out. Napoleon is back and he's looking good. And he's come, if you look at the map, he's come a long way. You get up toward Grenoble, I mean, he's, what, five or ten miles outside of Grenoble. You know, he's, he's really done quite well. He's issued countless bulletins, not, not bulletins, but <coughs> decrees of various kinds. He sent off letters. <coughs> Excuse me. He's told people that he only wants peace and so forth and so on. And people are cheering him. People are joining uh, every chance they get. But at Laffrey, he meets the first organized resistance. Uh, a battalion of the, the 5th Regiment had been sent to Laffrey to stop Napoleon in his tracks. And they'd been told under no uncertain circumstances they were to capture or kill Napoleon, but Napoleon was not to go any further. Now, there's a, an image, and of course this, this, this movie Waterloo has a wonderful scene of what happens at Laffrey. And, and you know, it's, it's very well known. We'll talk about it in a second. There's an image that it was a, a complete gamble on Napoleon's part to walk up before the assembled troops of the 5th. The reality is that the night before, a number of Napoleon's advance troops had mingled with a number of the troops, presumably in the local pubs of the 5th Regiment. And the word had been put out, you know, there's none of us are going to shoot Napoleon for crying out loud. Don't worry about it. Now, it's still a gamble. You know, what a few folks see in the bar may not represent all of the hardcore soldiers that are going to be sitting there giving, being given orders by their commanding officer, you know, to fire on this usurper. Uh, but still, there was at least some indication that the, 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 the soldiers of the 5th Regiment were, were inclined to, to, to be supportive. So Napoleon and his soldiers are, are marching up the road to, to Laffrey, and, and, and there's a, you, can, you can walk on the exact place where the, all this happened. There's statues, there's plaques, and so on. It's a, it's a little park-like area now. And... The two sides, the 5th Regiment and Napoleon soldiers, uh, square off against each other. And Napoleon, and, and I, I really believe that the scene in, in Waterloo with Rod Steiger gives a real good sense of what it must have been like. Napoleon tells his soldiers to lower their weapons. And, and, and he walks up to the soldiers of the 5th stands, oh, I suppose, 30 or 50 feet in front of them. 
opens his, his, his jacket and he says, soldiers. Well, actually, before, before then, some, one of the officers says, fire, and nothing happens. So Napoleon opens his jacket and says, soldiers. Je suis votre empereur. I'm your emperor. Do you recognize me? If there is one among you who would kill his general, mais voila, here I am. Well, there is a, a, a moment or so of silence. Now, in the movie, they have a soldier faint. I don't know if that happened or not, but, but somebody cries out, Vive l'Empereur! Long live the Emperor! Hats are thrown in the air. Muskets are, are lowered. And clearly, the officer is being disobeyed and the Emperor is being welcomed. It is an unbelievable scene, possibly unique in I've, all of history. I've got like chills going up, up and down my spine and, 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 and a few small tears in my eyes, David. I, seriously, it's just an unbelievable moment. It is. It is. And, and I don't know if you had wanted to tell that story or, or, or wanted to leave it to me because it's, it's one of those stories in the Napoleonic legend. Well, you know the trade-off. You know the trade-off, though, sir. Yeah, I know. We're coming up to that <laughs> soon enough. I'll do my best not to jump in front of you. <laughs> That'd be like jumping in front of an onrushing train. <laughs> no, look, that uh, it's great to hear you tell that story, and, and it's beautifully portrayed in by Rod Steiger in that film because as he walks up to the soldiers, he's not doing it arrogantly or with any massive amount of um, chutzpah, he almost looks worried. I mean, he, he's walking up there knowing that this could be the moment, that, that he could be shot on sight, that, that all of these soldiers have orders to take him down. And, and he walks forwards uh, with this look on his face, knowing that he's throwing his destiny. Even Now, your story about the fact that some of these soldiers had... Spoken the night before um, is is <laughs> disappointing. It takes away from the story just slightly, but you know he's still <laughs> yeah, yeah. You ruined it for me. Twenty years I've been waiting to tell this story, and, and you just blew it. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I you know grim reality sometimes comes in. But look, listen, Cameron. Let let me make it really clear. As and as I said earlier, yeah, there there was talk that it would be okay. But a, a number of soldiers in a bar making these kind of comments is still not a, 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 a done deal. It only takes one soldier to decide to be loyal to his officer. One royalist soldier who never did like that usurper anyway to go ahead and fire. And then it's all over. So while, you know, the... You know, it wasn't quite the risk that the movie makes it look like. I mean, there was indications that things would be okay. It, there was no guarantee. So the story, from your point of view, shouldn't be totally ruined. It's, it's still a very, very dramatic moment. Go ahead. 
Oh, no, I was just going to talk about Rod Steiger's performance. It's well worth watching. I mean, he it is an amazing moment. And again, this is the part of the story I remember reading 20-odd years ago for the first time in Cronin's book. In fact, I've still got in my copy of the book here big pen outlines of the section where he talks about this. Uh, I remember just laughing out loud at the time when I read it. I mean, what a, just an amazing, an amazing moment. Well, sure, and you, I, I sent you a, 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 an image of one of the engravings of my collection of that. You see a lot of uh, this picture of Napoleon, uh, and it's usually entitled A Return from Elba, and a lot of folks assume that's what it was when Napoleon stepped onto the, to the shore, but in fact, usually it's, it's this scene uh, at, at Laffrey where Napoleon is, is uh, standing before the... The soldiers of the Fifth Regiment. By the way, that same day, General Labidoyer, uh came over to Napoleon's side with with quite a number of troops. And one of my other books, I talk about which which unit that was, and I'm afraid that it escapes me right now. You may have it in front of you, but but it was a good day. He he gets the fifth the, the battalion of the fifth, but he also gets Labidoyer's the soldier and Labidoyer himself. Of course, that's not going to do Labidoyer much good uh, at the end of it all, but. Uh, as he'll be killed, but but uh, uh, at any rate, Napoleon. Well, so before after you, before you go on, the other interesting thing that Cronin points out at this point is these soldiers of the Fifth whip out from their haversacks the old tricolour ribbons that they had been obliged to remove eleven months before and stuck them in their hats, while onto the sure. grass fell a litter of white cockades. Now, what does that say to you? They're all carrying around their tricolour. Cockades. Why would they still be carrying those? Do you think they had anticipated Napoleon's return, or was it engineered? I mean, to me, this sounds very similar to American troops arriving in Baghdad and having all of the citizens waving American flags, which we now know, you know, there was an advance team sent in with thousands of American flags from the United States and handed out to citizens, and uh, they were they were obliged to wave them. Do you think this was uh, similarly engineered? I don't know if it was engineered, but remember, these soldiers would have known where they were going, and many of them would have decided probably what they were going to do about it. I don't know that they carried these cocades with them, you know, the, the entire time that Napoleon was gone. But once they were told to, to you know, suit up and let's go, we're going to confront Napoleon, I wouldn't doubt that out of their uh, footlockers and so on, out came these things, and they took them with them just in case. Because <laughs> uh, you're right, Cronin is absolutely correct. These, these things came out, and uh, the soldiers obviously had been uh, prepared uh, for, for this e- eventuality. Uh, so... Napoleon now has a lot more soldiers and a lot of momentum, but now he goes to Grenoble. Now, Grenoble is a walled city with gates. It was then, and you can still see today on one of the streets a, a plaque commemorative, a commemorative plaque, you know, that shows where the gates were that Napoleon, you know, entered the city of Grenoble. And the local military commander still loyal to Louis XVIII, who, after all, was the official ruler of the nation, refuses to open the gates. 
Well, the citizens of Grenoble had been among the earliest citizens to promote the French Revolution way back in those days. The French Revolution in some ways started in Grenoble as much as it started anywhere. And they were quite fond of Napoleon. And so they overran the the rather compliant forces of, of the military forces and they tore down uh, the gates themselves, carried Napoleon to uh, the Hotel of the Trois Dauphins, the Hotel uh, of the Three Dolphins, and then later came below his room and cheered him and said, uh, here, uh, you know, the, 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 the soldiers would not tear, would not open the gates, and so we have torn them down, and here they are for you. They gave him the remains of the wooden gates uh, to, to the... Uh, to, to the city and uh, uh, later uh, he, he goes across uh, to City Hall uh, which is in a park across from the hotel goes out to a balcony and uh, you can stand below that balcony uh, even to today uh, and he, he addresses uh, the citizens of Grenoble. Now I have to tell you a little story here uh, I've been to uh, Grenoble uh, at least twice both, both times as, as guest of the city, once, once uh, as a guest of the city through a sister city program that I was involved in, and once because of some writing I had done on uh, the, the novelist uh, Stendhal, who, who, Henri Bayel, who, who, who had been from Grenoble. Uh, and the archives and the museum uh, are, are there, and, and, and they were putting my writing in the archives, and they had me come there and so on. And... and uh, Another time, the third time, I guess it was, we, we were just coming through uh, as uh, tourists traveling the route Napoleon. And on that time, we stayed at the uh, Hotelion, the Hotel Napoleon, which as it happened was the Hotel de Trois Dauphins, the Hotel of the Three Dolphins. And uh, it had clearly fallen on the harder times as had the neighborhood. And I asked the, the desk clerk if it was possible for me to get Napoleon's room. Well, it turns out at that point, and this was many years ago, that Napoleon's room was being rented out <clears throat> by the hour rather than by the day. So... <laughs> My wife made it very clear we would not be staying in a room that was being rented out by by the hour. Uh, so we stayed in another room, which clearly had, had lost some of its prime. And as I understand it, that hotel has been completely redone. I've not, not been back, uh, and I'd, I'd love to go back sometime. And, and uh, I'm going to be in France this summer. Who knows? Perhaps I will. But... Uh, uh, at any rate, that's my little story of the Hotel of the, of the Three Dolphins. Uh, Napoleon wrote that before Grenoble, he had been an adventurer. But after Grenoble, he was a reigning prince. And he's meeting people. He is, he is sending out declarations uh, that he, he wanted no war, no more conquest. We must not be 
the deciders of other people's fates, he, he, he writes. Uh, he simply wants to embody and present himself as the embodiment of the French Revolution and the protector of all the reforms that he had instituted. Uh, There's a lot of excitement across France by now. Now people more and more are happy about this. And they like the idea that he doesn't want war, and he likes the idea that he wants to eliminate this rolling back of the gains of the revolution that Louis' people had begun to, to uh, institute. So he stays there for a while and then continues to march forward. And now any number of units have been sent to intercept him, and they all do the same thing. They all uh, are, are quick to turn to uh, Napoleon. Uh, Marshal MacDonald is waiting for Napoleon at Lyon. And he's got his troops in positions and so forth and so on. And in, 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 in my other book, uh, Napoleon's Road to Glory, he, he discovers that uh, his soldiers have no interest in fighting. Thank you very much. And so Marshal MacDonald beats a hasty re retreat. Uh, Marshal Ney tries to inspire his soldiers to defend the king. Uh, he is told under on no uncertain terms that his soldiers have no interest in fighting against Napoleon. And so with a great deal of soul searching, he switches sides and instead issues a proclamation to his soldiers to join him with the uh, immortal phalanx which the Emperor Napoleon is conducting to Paris. And so on the 18th of March, Napoleon meets uh, Nera uh, at Auxerre. Uh, and and the, it's a kind of an uncomfortable meeting. Of course, Napoleon's not real happy with what Ney did with the revolt of the marshals that we talked about and, and having promised to bring him back in an iron cage. Uh, but uh, the two shake hands. Napoleon needs Ney, not just because Ney's a great general in many respects, but because Ney is a true French hero. Ney is a symbol of the military. If Ney goes to Napoleon, everything's going to fall into place. So Ney goes to Napoleon, and sure enough, everything pretty much falls into place. I've got and in fact, at that point, Louis understands. You know, on the 19th of March, Louis says, uh-oh, I'm out of here. And away he goes as Napoleon approaches Paris. And there's all sorts of things going on in Paris, all sorts of brides and other things. There's, there's, there's commemorative medallions being, being made. There's, there's engravings of Napoleon returning as Caesar being made, one of which... Is, is, is in my books and hangs in the wall just outside my library. And there's other things that are going on in Paris, and I'm guessing you're going to tell us about one of them. <laughs> and now... <laughs> well, before I get to that, I was going to say that uh, I've got Napoleon's um, uh, forgiveness of uh, 
Marshall Ney here, uh, taken from Max Gallo's book. So I'm not exactly sure if this is Gallo making it up or if this is quoted somewhere. You might be able to tell me, but he says, you don't need excuses, Napoleon tells Ney. Your excuse, like mine, lies in events which have been stronger than any man. But let's talk no further about the past and only remember it in order to conduct ourselves better in the future. Very noble. You heard that before? Is that factual or is that well, uh, I think, Gallo's I think interpretation? I think that's very close. Uh, in Ney's, Ney's proclamation, by, by the way, uh, I've got a little bit uh, more of it here. The cause of the Bourbons is lost forever. Liberty is at length triumphant. And Napoleon, our august emperor, is about to confirm it forever. Soldiers, I have often led you to victory. I am no, now going to conduct you to that immortal phalanx which the Emperor Napoleon is conducting to Paris. Vive l'Empereur. And uh, Napoleon says at this time too, returning to Cronin, I shall punish no one, he issued in a declaration. I want to forget all such incidents. So then we have, and David has been very magnanimous to grant me the opportunity to read this. <laughs> the... Um, the, the, Marshall MacDonald in his memoirs uh, wrote that there was a series of broadsheet, okay, newspaper headlines in Paris, which from the time that the news had arrived that Napoleon had landed back in France, you could sort of tell the changing public sentiment towards Napoleon by the headlines of the, the newspapers. So the first one reads, The tiger has broken out of his den. Then the next one is, the ogre was three days at sea. The wretch has landed at Fréjus. The brigand has arrived at Antibes. The invader has reached Grenoble. The general has entered Lyon. Napoleon slept last night at Fontainebleau. The emperor proceeds to the Tuileries today. His imperial majesty will address his loyal subjects tomorrow. Marvellous stuff. Oh, it is, uh, and and you know David Chandler has written that it's in it's in McDonald, it's a number of things, uh, and it really if you if you look at the different way they have of calling Napoleon, he he goes from the tiger, the ogre, the wretch, to the general, to Napoleon, to his imperial majesty. I mean, just those things alone are are wonderful. Uh, I, uh, I I wanted to to uh, talk a little bit more about McDonald. Also, a very similar kind of thing, and I mentioned it uh, uh, before. The Comte d'Artois uh, was with Marshal McDonald was at, at Lyon, and and he was determined also to to stop Napoleon. Uh, and he went before the soldiers and asked them to pledge allegiance, you know, to King Louis the Eighteenth. And his soldier, now this is this is the Comte d'Artois. You know, and Marshal McDonald and the soldiers refused to do it. Uh, they won't, won't even call either what. And so the Comte d'Artois leaves McDonald, uh, you know, to do the best that he can. Uh, and he goes out to inspect the preparations for the defense of Lyon. And he notices that nothing's been done. They're supposed to be, you know, sandbagging or whatever it is. Uh, and nothing's happened. And so one of, uh, one of McDonald's staff officers arrives with the news, and here's a quote from, from McDonald, and, 
and then I'll follow it with with a longer thing. Uh, so so the the staff officer announces a reconnoitering party has just returned. McDonald says, "What had it seen? Napoleon's advance guard. Far away. Just coming into the suburbs of Guilletier. Well, what McDonald says? What happened? And the officer says." The two parties drank together. <laughs> well, this isn't exactly what McDonald needed to hear. And so McDonald tries again. He writes in his memoirs, I, as I reach the bridge gates, cries of long live the emperor burst from the other side of the river. On the caves, the crowd took up the shout and echoed it in a deafening manner. I instantly put into execution the design I had formed of making some show of resistance. I intended to gain the head of the bridge with my staff, stop the first who appeared, seize their weapons, and fire. The bridge was blocked by troops and columns. Come along, gentlemen, I cried. We must get down. We jumped off our horses and hurried along, the, along on foot as rapidly as we could. But scarcely had we reached a quarter of the distance when the fourth hussars, Napoleon scouts, appeared at the other end of the bridge. At this sight, officers and soldiers mingle their cheers with the shouts of the populace. Shakos were waved on bayonets in token of delight. The feeble barricades were thrown down. Everyone pressed forward to welcome the news, the new arrivals to the town. From that moment, all was lost. And and MacDonald leaves right right after that. So, you know. You know, Napoleon is clearly working the magic. He 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 acts as a ruling monarch once he gets to Lyon. Uh, he 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 now has decided that that things, in fact, uh, uh, are are going well. Uh, he dissolves the two chambers, the legislative chambers. Uh, he calls for new laws to be passed that would that would improve the constitutional nature of his reign. From Lyon, he writes Ray Louise, asking her to be in Paris on the 20th of March, their son's birthday. He reestablishes the imperial magistracy, and he demands that the recently returned emigres leave the country. Oh, and he also orders the arrest of your buddy, Talleyrand, along with Marmon Azuro and a number of others. He should have ordered them shot on sight, starting, of course, with Fouché, but we'll get to that later. Uh, he, he writes, I was hurried on by the course of events into a wrong path, writing of his earlier career. But taught by experience, I have abjured the love of glory. I have renounced forever that grand enterprise. We have had enough of glory. We want a repose. And, and and that's just what the people had wanted to hear. Earlier, he had been told by some, you know, we were just beginning to be quiet and happy. Now you're going to stir us up again. And he's saying, no, I'm not going to try to stir you up again. Uh, and, uh, and 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 you don't need to worry about it. Well, now he's in in Franche Comte and Burgundy. Uh, these areas were very prosperous under the empire. Uh, 
if you if you prosper under a leader, you like your leader. So Napoleon is a pretty pretty friendly uh, territory. He goes to Macron and Chalon, Villefranche. He's greeted by by crowds chanting a bala noble, uh, a bala petres, a bala bourbons. Down with the nobles, down with the priests, down with the bourbons. Uh, Villefranche, sixty thousand people uh, cheered, cheered on. Uh, and and uh, you know it's uh, it's quite a it's quite an event. Uh, and uh, you know, as, as I said earlier, Napoleon uh, takes uh, takes off. Uh, or not Napoleon. Uh, Louis the the eighteenth uh, uh, takes off on the nineteenth. Uh, he had claimed uh, a few days earlier that he would die upon his throne to defend his his reign. Uh, but a few days later, he left for for Belgium. Quite reminiscent, uh, actually, of Louis the Sixteenth trying to disappear out of France in the middle of the night, really, isn't it? During the Revolution. Well, that's right. That's exactly right. The the flight to Varennes. Uh, Except this time, Louis the Eighteenth doesn't get caught as Louis the Sixteenth got caught. That's correct, and 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 frankly, I think that's unfortunate. General Rapp, uh, quite bitter about everything he saw, uh, especially about Louis, says, "But all these worthies." so ardent for the treasury, for decorations and commands, soon showed the amount of their courage. Napoleon appeared. They were eclipsed. They had flocked to Louis XVIII, the dispenser of favors, but they had not a trigger to pull for Louis XVIII in misfortune. And, of course, by the next day, by the time Napoleon gets there and the day after, uh, you know, the Paris Mint is uh, issuing... uh, medallions there's all sorts of of medals and engravings uh i've got a snuff box with a gold medallion set into it uh, showing uh, uh the 18th uh, or excuse me the the 20th of, of march with napoleon marie louise and the king of rome of course uh, they never showed up unfortunately but napoleon arrives there's thousands of people uh cheering cheering him on and uh uh, it, it's it's quite a scene, and and again, the movie we've mentioned uh, talks about it uh, a great deal, uh, as, as shows shows that that kind of scene as well. It's chaos. He's carried into to the uh, Tuileries Paris uh, Palace. Uh, Hortense uh, is there, and and uh, you know it. It's just incredible, General uh, Thiebaud, uh, who had been with the Bourbon, but joins Napoleon, writes, never did Napoleon exercise a greater moral influence than at that moment. If the return from Waterloo was to complete the melancholy work of the return from Moscow, the impression made by this return from Elba was worthy of that produced by the return from Egypt. So, you know, we basically ended the first phase of the hundred days, and it's the glory phase. It's the exciting phase. It's it's the phase of of the quote that that that, that you so 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 well read. Uh, it's it's the phase of everybody switching sides and going to him. It's the phase of of Louis the Eighteenth uh, uh, leaving. Uh, 
you know, a very, very short time uh, after Napoleon uh, arrives. Uh, it, it really does look like the good old days uh, have returned. Uh, but there's stuff underlying what's about to come. Go ahead. And let's uh, just point out for the folks again that not a shot was fired, not a single drop of blood was shed. Napoleon retook the entire country without firing a single shot. Landed, oh. landed. He let. He left. Uh, and people will recall he said goodbye to his old guard at Fontainebleau on April twentieth, eighteen fourteen. By March 20th, 1815, he was back on the throne, back of Fontainebleau, and he had not fired a single shot. Just mind-boggling. Mind-boggling. And Louis ran away. He ran away. <laughs> I love it. Well, you know, Louis, Louis had been put into power... Not by the will of the people of France. They didn't want him. Not by the army, not by a legitimate coup d'etat, if a coup d'etat is legitimate. But bayonets of the enemy, supported by treason of people like Mormon and Agiro, and by the revolt of the marshals who had finally had enough, and they saw the handwriting on the wall. It wasn't because Napoleon had been ultimately defeated. It wasn't because there was a popular uprising against him. So there was reason to believe that Napoleon was a legitimate ruler again, that the people of France would at the very least acquiesce for the moment and not attempt to, to give him you know, the boot. The real question, of course, is going to be, and I think we're going to have to deal with it next time, uh, the real question is going to be what's going to happen with the Allies? What are we going to do about it? Napoleon makes some preliminary moves. He brings in, you know, one of his great liberal critics from the early days, Benjamin Constant, a, a, a liberal who probably halfway expected to be shot or or exiled. And instead, Napoleon says, listen, my old friend, my old adversary, help me write a liberal constitution. I'll put you in charge. Constant is a, a major intellectual who had been a, an intellectual leader of the, of the opposition to Napoleon's empire. He liked Napoleon earlier. And... Constant can't quite believe it. But he says, you know, you don't get asked to write a constitution for a country like France very many times in your life, and it beats exile. So, hell yes. And he does. And he writes a constitution which brings in the support of the liberals. The revolutionaries and those who want a republic are now with Napoleon. And and, and, and the people on the 22nd of April, only a couple of days more than a month after he, he arrives, ratify this constitution. And, you know, the people now are very, very clearly in favor 
of Napoleon. And Napoleon also writes to the leaders of all the other major nations. He writes to every single one of them saying, listen, I don't want to fight anymore. I will accept the borders of 1702, which is to say the borders that existed in the relatively early days of the French Revolution. And I'll be happy with that. I just don't want to mess with anything else. And he had some other things, you know, going, going for him. And I think that we will talk about some of those things and we will talk about the one big problem that he had next time. Au revoir, folks.